His name was Julian. He was the emperor of Rome in the year A.D. 361. He was a very frustrated emperor. He had rejected Christianity in his youth. His uncle was Constantine, who had legalized Christianity after centuries of persecution. But Julian wanted to go his own way. So he abandoned Christianity, and he wanted to uh, revive the religions of ancient pagan Rome. Especially the mother of the gods, uh, the gods, the mother of the gods, Sibel. And so he offered to bankroll, not even out of the coffers of the government, but out of his own checkbook, monies that would help the poor and the starving. I mean, he, he wrote the check, and he told the priests of Sibel, go use this money. But he had a problem. They wouldn't. I mean, be, because they didn't care about the poor. Why would we help the starving? Well, what good would that be? The priests of Sibel would rather have spent their time living out the values of Sibel. If it gets a little slow here in the next 30 minutes, you might be tempted to Google C-Y-B-E-L-E, Sibel. And you'll probably go, <gasps> because the values of Sibel were uh, dancing, which, okay, just, just bear with me here, dancing, cross-dressing, uh, self-injury with sharp blades, and alcohol consumption. The fact is, Julian couldn't get the priests of Sibel out of the tavern. Meanwhile, the committed Christian bishops received offerings from the generosity of God's people on a weekly basis and they had developed a very well-managed system of distribution. And needs were being met. Lives were being changed. And house churches, and then building churches by that time, were, 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 being, were swelling with people who they wanted truth from, from all different kinds of backgrounds and all different uh, uh, levels of social life in all different ethnicities. It was a powerful thing to see. And the priests of Sibel couldn't compete with that. In fact, Julian was so frustrated, he sent a letter. And this is what the letter wrote to, to the priest. How apparent it is to everyone and how shameful that our people lack support from us that is the priests who are in the tavern, 
And the Christians support only, not only their own poor, but us. <laughs> Julian said that. And then three years later, he died. What's the moral of this story, Pastor? Where are we going with this? Love wins. Love wins. That's the moral of the story. You, 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 Julian, mighty emperor of Rome, could not compete with the love of Christ. And that's the moral. And 300 years before Julian, Hebrews chapter 13. You knew I was going to get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13 Verses 1 through 6 set the tone for the trajectory of the church that would, that would flourish based on the Word of God. And, 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 and the church will still flourish when we pay attention to the Word of God. What, what words are in Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 6? We're gonna, well, that's what we're going to see today. Take your Bibles and meet me in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Now, we have been saying since Labor Day <laughs> of 2022 that Jesus is better. Right? He's better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the prophets, He's better than the mysterious priest Melchizedek. He's better than the entire sacrificial temple tabernacle system of the, of the former covenant. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Okay, okay, okay. How ought that affect my life? How ought that belief impact my life? Well, that's what we're going to see in Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, that is God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, and I want you all to say this out loud with me. Here we go. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. This is God's word. Now, did you hear that? See, so Jesus is better, therefore love one another. Today's text teaches us that love is the most convincing proof that Christ is better. So, so I, I can do no better than Hebrews 13.1 as our big idea. And, and so let's just, let's just let the text speak. Let brotherly love continue. That's a big idea. 
Let brotherly love continue. Christ wants us to love each other as his brothers and sisters in the heavenly Father's family. That's, that's what we're going to see today in these verses. Uh, what we're gonna, love is evidence that Christ is better. And that's why the priests of Sabel then and now can't compete. Because Christ is better. And love is evidence of that. But of course, this prompts the question, Pastor, what do you mean by love? So who gets to define what love is? Well, let's privilege the text. Let's let the text have its say. And so so these verses define love four ways. Verse 1, brotherly love. You see that? Uh, Verses 2 and 3, stranger love. Stranger love, that's the word hospitality. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 4, marital love. Verses 5 and 6, money love. All right? So so this is a yes, 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 no sermon. Brother love? Yes. Stranger love? Yes. Marital love? Yes. Money love? Okay? All right? So what I want to do here is unpack the meaning and significance of each of these kinds of love and and you may be asking well wow so so do you see what's happening here in the text you see here for for really almost 12 chapters it's been christ christ is better christ is better christ is better but now we get to some practical application of that and and you may say well why these particular aspects of practical application here's why Each of these expressions of love deals with the everyday, nitty-gritty particulars of life. So so these verses talk about beds and bankrolls. You cannot connect behavior from belief. You can't. What, what What you believe will eventually surface in your behavior. So our heart convictions about God eventually show up on the sidewalk and at 5 p.m. traffic and longer than expected grocery lines or delayed flights, right? Want to have a test of your discipleship faith? Go have your flight delayed. Really? Okay? All right? And now you know what's going on the next time your flight is delayed. Oh, the Lord is testing my faith. Okay, I get it. Oh, and also disagreements with the umpire at your child's ball game. Okay, all right. Ah, this, this is just brass tacks. This is, this, is just, this is just, I mean, boots on the ground, practical application. I like how one pastor put it. Uh, the gospel is best communicated where the conviction of those who believe it can be observed by those who don't. So let's look at each of these aspects of love. Beginning with brother love, which is a resounding yes. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Now, now, what is brother love? Well, we're familiar with the name of the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Brother love, sibling love, that's who we are. That's who we are. So Jesus gave us our primary identity in Matthew 23, verse 8. He said, you are all 
all brothers and, and sisters. And sisters. When the Bible says now brothers or it's, it's, it's let the Bible speak in its own time and its own terms and understand that brothers includes brothers and sisters. What Jesus is doing, he's reconfigured who we are to that of family. Family terminology permeates the sermon to the Hebrews. So, for instance, back in Hebrews 1.5, the scripture says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's Jesus' relationship to God. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, it says, I will tell of, of the Father's name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So, so the reason why you hear me often speak, uh, address us as church family is because that's who we are. God is our heavenly father and through his firstborn son Jesus Christ we have all been adopted into his household and though we may have different biological genetic histories the biblical and spiritual reality of Christ's death burial and resurrection and the sending of his Holy Spirit into our lives individually and corporately as a church this reality reality has reconfigured us into Christ's kingdom family Now, I can't overemphasize how extraordinary this was in first century Rome. Because back then, you might call someone a friend or a close friend or a dear friend, but if you didn't come from the same womb, you would not regard them or refer to them or be responsible to them as a brother or sister. But Jesus changed that. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Yeah, Mark chapter 3, verse 32 says that a crowd was sitting around Jesus. And, and they said to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And then Jesus said, he said something that was just like, what did he just say? Here, here's what he said. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking about at, at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my my brother and sister and mother. What? Yeah. And then then Jesus said this. He promised this. Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So, you know, Sarah and I have been beneficiaries of that verse. Yeah. You are the answered prayer to this verse. Yeah. That, that you know, we left our hometowns. We, we moved here and, and, and God is just a hundredfold. And, and heaven, too. Yeah. I mean, people saw Jesus' love for tax collectors and sinners and foreigners, and they watched his impartial love for all, and the cross and the empty tomb became the great unifier of every tribe and nation and tongue. Yes. All were under the curse of sin, and so all needed his cleansing blood. 
And when his blood is applied to a human soul by grace through faith, we enter his family. And, and this reality, listen to me, this reality completely levels the, the social playing field in a way that confounds the world. Because in the Roman Empire, I mean, it was just a caste system. That's how it was. And, and caste systems still exist today. But Jesus levels that. I mean, just absolutely levels that. And uh, I'm thinking of a bishop in the early church by the name of Cyprian who called the most destitute, and, and, he, and, and Cyprian... I mean, he was a highly educated, his family was very prosperous, and he just, he just, he was just a f channel of blessing, but he wasn't, I mean, he didn't do it in a patronizing way. He said to the, to the, to the impoverished, you're my brothers and sisters, and people just couldn't, wow, and they heard it, and they saw it, and, and they saw Jesus. And they saw Jesus. And the social playing field was just leveled to call one another brothers and sisters. It was no cliche. What it means is this. It means we have each other's backs. It means that you have a spiritual family even when you lose your biological family. It means that there are no orphans in the family of Christ. It means that if your biological family rejects you because of your faith in Christ, you have a family still. You have a heavenly family. It means that we are one another's reward and we are one another's treasure in life. And it means that we are a resource of strength for one another in this difficult journey of life. And when you have that kind of bank, you can take risks that you normally wouldn't take because you know that you have people who are praying for you and who love you and who need to hear of your prayers and your love, Amen. you know? <laughs> Listen. Feel very free to come into the fireside room if for no other reason than to pray for us. Amen. Okay? I, I would be happy and, and, and honored to receive your prayers you see, because we're family. And, and notice verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Continue. In other words, it's not a given. So, so just as biological siblings must expend a great deal of energy to keep their relationships healthy, and that is true, isn't it? So must we, even when it's awkward, painfully awkward. See, Christianity attracts people who are hurting and, you know, whose lives are falling apart, and, and then the message of the cross provides healing. Well... There's traction and growth takes place. 
And, and because of our differences, because of our economic, educational, geographical, uh, uh, generational, ethnic differences, misunderstandings abound. But this is part of love. Love sticks around. Love takes time and intentionality. Let brotherly love continue. It, it requires us to make margin for one another in our lives. Amen? Brotherly love? Yes. Let's talk about stranger love. That too is a yes. Stranger love. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That, the, the, so the literal meaning of hospitality so Philadelphia is brother love. Philoxenia, Philoxenia is stranger love, love of stranger or the love of the strange. The opposite of Philoxenia is xenophobia. Everybody in here knows what xenophobia is, right? Fear of strangers. So hospitality is love of strangers. So hospitality is a way of expressing love. Now, in their world 2,000 years ago, first century Rome, much like we have an interstate system in our country, Rome had an interstate system in the empire. That's how the Apostle Paul was able to spread uh, the gospel. That's how he, how he was able to, to, to travel and go. I don't know if you can see, uh, can we dim these house lights just a little bit? I, I want you to see the, uh, the shaded part. It's the Roman Empire, but there are little, it looks, little veins uh, or arteries. Uh, those were Roman roads. I mean, those were, were uh, you know, manufactured Roman highways by which the empire spread and by, by which the Apostle Paul traveled and took the gospel. And so like today's interstate travel, there was, there was lodging in cities and along highways, but you know, they, you know, they didn't have a chain of holiday inns. Or they didn't have a chain of Hilton Garden Inns or, or, or anything like that. I mean, uh, you wouldn't be looking at you know, three-star or four-star accommodations. Perhaps, you know, in a really good area, a quarter of a star. Okay. Now, in my research for today, I, I basically read about filthy lodges. I read about innkeepers who were associated with magical practices. That would be an interesting Maybe not. I learned that it was. I learned that it was just assumed by the innkeeper that a traveler would want, and I quote, according to one source, commercial male or female companionship. That was just an assumption, you know. So for these reasons, Christians opened their homes to Christians. So that's why we would read in the Book of Acts when a woman in Philippi named Lydia was baptized. Uh, she insisted that St. Paul and his missionary team stay as her guests. And so, so hospitality wasn't just a practical alternative to poor Yelp reviews. It, it was a concrete expression of Christian love. And that's why verse 2 says, do not neglect stranger love. Don't neglect showing hospitality to strangers. Um, um, but here's the deal. The preacher knows who he's talking to. 
and the congregation, some have already had their property confiscated. And the preacher knows that some have faced drastic cuts in their finances. And yet the preacher still urges hospitality. Why? Why? Here's why. Here's why. Please get this. Please get this. Hospitality does not require Waterford Crystal. Any old crockpot will do. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. See, because the point of hospitality is about FaceTime with another image bearer. It's about slowing down and hearing someone's story. Who knows that you might be serving coffee to an angel, right? Some have entertained angels unawares. That's a reference to Abraham's hospitality to the angels of the Lord in Genesis 18. Genesis 18. So, so in other words, more things may be happening in a moment of hospitality than you can even imagine. Isn't that beautiful? And, and so now, 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 let me jump to 2023 here for a minute to talk about another kind of hospitality that I believe is relevant in our day. And I want to call it, it or it has been called, intellectual hospitality. Let me explain. Intellectual hospitality has to do with making room and welcoming and hearing in a spirit of kindness someone else's different thoughts. The point is to truly try to understand someone else. Doesn't mean you need to agree with them. But it does require you to, it does require you to fire your inner lawyer. It means, it, it means acknowledging that the person on the other side of the table is a human and perhaps they have something to teach me even, even if I ultimately reject their big idea. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. What is the good of listening to what anyone else has to say unless you contain in yourself the sources that can supply all the information and all the entertainment and all the advice and rebuke and all the merriment you want? The answer is obvious. But here's the deal. Hospitality only works if you're willing to move at a slower pace. Velocity kills hospitality. And if you find it hard to have a conversation with or compassion for someone who moves at a slower pace, stranger love, stranger love, love of the stranger is never going to happen. Hospitality invites us to periodically stop and take a breath with another human being before moving out again. Can you do that, the preacher says. Can you, can you use your dining room, your living room, your condo, your dorm room, the front porch, the back patio? Can you use your garden for the purpose of inviting strangers to become neighbors and neighbors to become part of God's family? Can you use that thing? And isn't that the point? Building the church and living like the family of God. Uh, I want to recommend a book that uh, I think would, is a wonderful book on the theme of hospitality. It's written by uh, Rosaria Butterfield. And it, the book is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And this is what she wrote. The truly hospitable aren't embarrassed to keep friendships with people who are different. 
They don't buy the world's bunk about this. They know that there is a difference between acceptance and approval, and they courageously accept and respect people who think differently from them. They don't worry that others will misinterpret their friendship. Then she said this, here it is. Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Jesus lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. This is the Jesus paradox. Hmm. Brother love, yes. Stranger love, yes. Marital love, yes. Verse 4. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Now, converts to Christ in the Roman Empire would have included those who had come from all different backgrounds and all different um, histories and all sorts, frankly, of sexual experimentation, exploration, and exploitation. It was not uncommon for Roman men to share procreational sex with their wives and recreational sex with others. So Roman men had two spaces, family and duties and their guilty pleasures. That was normal for the Roman male. So, so furthermore, in the Roman family system, it was just assumed that the Roman husband and father would assert domination, control, and power. And, and this was by law. Uh, Augustus called it the patria potestas, the power of the father. Christianity came and urged the power of the Father to be put for the welfare of the vulnerable. Don't use your power for yourself, but for others. Because that's what love does. Not sexual exploitation. Human sexuality is a gift of God who made us in His image, male and female. And so the human body must be treated with respect and dignity. And sexual responsibility affirms God as creator and king over our bodies. Jesus taught a marital sexual ethic grounded in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the norm is sexual fidelity between a husband and a wife and no one else. And although the preacher to the Hebrews would undoubtedly want the Roman society as a whole to be orthodox in marriage and sexuality, the immediate concern is for the redeemed community. And so Hebrews 11.4 addresses the church of the firstborn. And the standard is Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage is a covenant commitment a gift from God between a man and a woman. There's no other way to read Hebrews 13.4 if you are concerned with the biblical author's intent. Illicit sexual intercourse defiles the marriage bed and profanes what God has made holy. And sexual immorality is the rejection of the presence and goodness of God who created the human family in its maleness and femaleness. Now think about this verse and the context because the preacher is speaking to persecuted Christians gathered in worship not in a space like this but in someone's home. It's a house church 
And, and so in a first century culture where Roman male domination and abuse were rampant, here was a place where holy love could refresh the wounded. So, you know, I mean, sexual purity is, is, is not just for someone to be bragging about. It is put to the service of others so that the space others enter, namely the space of the house church hosted by a God-fearing, Christ-loving, holy couple, here was a space where holy love could refresh the wounded. Here was a space free from the objectification of the body. In a vicious capital city of pain and hurt, here was a space where the wounded could heal. See, The, the, the home housed the church so that it could be a, a safe place, a trauma center, a depot of mercy, a hospital of healing. And the host knows the grace of Christ because the host used to be outside of Christ. So sexual impurity can be purified by the blood of Jesus so that as fully devoted followers of Jesus, the message that he is better can be amplified more and more. Do you see why the Bible says what it says about Marriage and sexuality? Brother love, yes. Stranger love, yes. Marital love, yes. Money love, eh. No. No. So God wants us to refrain from money love. That's verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So, so whereas in the first four verses, love is an action. You see that? Love is an action. Isn't it interesting? In verses 5 and 6, we see love as an emotion, an emotional craving. And God says, I don't want you craving money. You know, if Jesus is better, then crave Jesus. Money ought not to be craved as a source of security and contentment. The stock market drops a thousand points. I don't want your heart unsettled about that. Do not let money love ruin contentment. And you might say, well, how can God ask that? Because it seems so hard to control my emotions. And the answer is in verse 5. It's that little word in verse 5, for. For, you see it? For he has said. For he has said. So the preacher is quoting Joshua 1.5, where the Lord said to Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that was God's promise to Moses, and it's God's promise to Joshua. And the preacher to the Hebrews uses that text to encourage them, and it's for us too, church. He's, he's not going to leave us or forsake us. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of God's promises are yes in Christ, all of them. So when the preacher of the Hebrews cites Joshua 1.5 and applies it to the church then, it's for us. And furthermore, Romans 8.32 says that, that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a promise. It's my promise. It's for me. I will never leave you or forsake you. So the preacher says, so we can say confidently. See, confidently, that's a feeling. But, 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 
He doesn't say, he doesn't say now we can believe or now we can trust or now we can hold it in our hearts. No, no, no. What it, the text says we can say. Why? Because saying shows confidence. You know who the best preacher is in your life? You are. Because you talk to yourself all day long. You've been talking to yourself for the last 35 minutes. I've been talking to myself while I've been talking to you. I mean, that's just how it works. And so, you know, believing can be so vague. I can pray about something and walk away and I can say, well, I hope that happens. Well, no, 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 no. Say it. Saying God's truth shows confidence. So, so whenever your heart worries about how much you have, you set your mind on what he has said. So here's the logic of verses 5 and 6. God has promised me his presence always, always, always. Therefore, I can say the Lord is my helper, which means that the Lord will take care of me, not that the Lord is my personal assistant. He helps me. He's with me. Therefore, what can man do to me? Well, what can man do to me? Well, man can kill me. Man can steal from me. Man can plunder my property. Man can imprison me. But ultimately, man cannot ruin me. God will not let anything happen to his children to their ruin. He won't. He has promised his presence. Therefore, I will not fear. Therefore, I will be free from money love. Therefore, I will enjoy contentment. God has promised me his own presence. Preach that to yourself this week. And when you're free from money love, and you know that the Lord is your helper and your heart is content, man, that opens up a lot of possibilities, doesn't it? And you can show love to strangers, even if it's with just paper plates. You can visit someone in prison. Because you know that even if your stuff is stolen while you're seeing someone in prison, which is what happened to them then, God's going to take care of you. What can man do to me? Because you know that God can take care of you. You can respect your body, and you can respect the bodies of other image bearers. And you can live a holy life distinct from the world. And you can join your brothers and sisters in Christ for a weekly family reunion. And we can sing praises because we're here. We're here not to hear our favorite songs. We're here to encourage one another. Amen. And you're coming to corporately hear the word of Christ so that you can love Christ better because Christ is better and love shows it that. I'm done.